0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. It's a pleasure to be here with you. If you have any questions for me, it's more important than ever to send them in to the old email box. You can do that any number of ways by going to any of my websites and hitting the contact button, and that will all go to the same place. That is my email box. You can also email me directly, chris at chris at Any one of those will work. So, without any further ado, let's move on to the first question of the day. So, question number one. All right. This one comes from Anneke, and she is asking about the role of women in the church. Specifically, should women be elders or, or in the church? Uh, she writes, "I hope you can answer this question. Sorry for my poor English in advance. I am Dutch. I've been a Christian for a year uh, or two, and some of your videos have really helped me out. I'm going to a church in the Netherlands, and on this subject, they are not giving me the answer I need. As a matter of fact, they are signing up women uh, women as one of the elders in the church." How do I explain this in English? Their argument is that they are, that it is wrong to discriminate women. Of course, I agree, as I am a woman myself. Another argument is that there are very many valuable women in, in the Bible with important roles. I know that too, but I can't read anywhere where it makes it clear that it's okay for a woman to be a pastor or a elder. The only woman in the Bible I'm confused about is Deborah. Can you tell me more about your view on this? I am a full-time single mom with three kids with a very good salary. Most uh, men would wish that most men would wish for I. Could give it up in an instant if this is what God would want. I could not care less about human references about discrimination or women's roles. I care about God's view. I believe for now that it is okay for me to provide for my kids, but I don't think it would be okay for me to have a, a leadership role over a man or men, and in a way where I would be uh, responsible for their spiritual life, like an el- like an elder or a pastor. Paul is c- quite clear about um, about women in some parts of the Bible that are not popular. I'm not bothered by these quotes in the Bible. I think they are very clear. And I think that I understand uh, why he says it. The Bible is never, I think, clear on women's leadership roles about apart from Deborah Esther was a queen, but I guess she had to submit to her husband. It, okay. So let's just stop there. Uh, first of all, I think this is, this is a great email. It is really well said. And you, for being a new Christian, you are extremely mature, extremely discerning, and so thank you for sending this in. I think it is a good example as well as a good question. Okay, so it is a bit of a touchy subject, the role of women as elders or pastors. I think that we need to make that distinction, first of all. What is an an elder or pastor? Well, I guess for our purpose, it's probably helpful just to think of it as an elder or pastor or head pastor in the modern church, but there are some differences that are in scripture that I don't want to go into too much detail on perhaps in another show or something like that about the the roles of elders in the in the church both modern and ancient. But the the question here for our purposes just think of it as a pastor uh, in the church, however, there is a difference that I want to highlight for our purposes, as it will help to understand what the Bible has to say about this question of should women be elders. There is a sense in which the elder, in addition to being a teacher, which was their primary purpose, to teach, uh, to, to look in the scriptures and to teach those scriptures, they also had uh, the responsibility of of shepherding the flock in the sense of being an authority figure over that flock. We have the, the picture in some places of church discipline the Lord talks about in uh, different places where we get the sense that the elders could basically kick somebody out for unrepentant, continual sin and these kinds of things. It is in this sense that an elder, uh, that all the people in a church were in subjection to the elders. If the elders told you to do something, then you should do it. Now, we all kind of cringe at that because we can think of abuses and so on and so forth, but the Bible gives very specific things and qualifications for elders that if those were followed for real in every church that ever elected an elder ever for real, then there wouldn't be any problems with submitting to that authority. But I want to highlight that there is a sense, in addition to teaching, uh, that elders were to have authority over people, Um, and I think that is going to come into... Uh, play as we try to discover what's going on here. When most people try to answer the question about should women be elders or pastors, they point to the passages in the pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy, and Titus, where they um, where qualifications for elders are mentioned. And these lists of qualifications these are things like you know should not be given to wine and and all these kinds of things that. A person needs to be able to check in order to be in the running for a pastor. They they say things that seem to presuppose that these will be men. So, for example, it says that he needs to be a husband of one wife. and That right there seems to presuppose that we're talking about a man here. Uh, also, it says things like he needs to rule his own house well, and that in light of other passages that, that give the man the authority to rule the house sort of gives that idea but I wouldn't say that in itself is sufficient for us to say that women should not be elders in the church. I will say that it does seem to contrast those kinds of things when talking about the roles of of elders and deacons. It then goes into the role of women. Uh, they should not be gospers and so on and so forth. So there seems to be a built-in contrast with women and elders and deacons, which I think helps to bolster the case that that is a sufficient argument but i won't ask you to believe that based on just that passage i do think that the issue is directly addressed uh that could easily be missed for two reasons uh it's directly addressed i believe in first timothy 2 12 through 14 this is a pastoral epistle uh section uh, Paul has just started out this letter to Timothy. He has first of all warned him, look, we've got to be able to debunk some people. Hymenaeus and Alexander are out there doing stuff. They're subverting people. you got to be able to do that. So he's he's getting down to business here about this time in the letter. And he starts to talk about his own um, you know, people praying in church. He's now talking about roles in church. And what you might miss here that we'll talk about in a minute is because he goes right into men being elders right at the uh, at the next chapter. Because the chapter break is artificial, uh, you would miss this. But I think that's not the issue. The issue is in First Timothy 2, verse 12. I'll just read the passage. Very controversial, so everybody calm down a little bit. It says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay, so... What I would first say here to calm our nerves a bit is that I don't think this is saying that a woman should not teach at all um, in a biblical way. And I say that because, number one, they we see women teaching in other places in the Bible in very unique circumstances. For example, um, when Priscilla and her husband Aquila... They teach the man who had not yet heard the message of the gospel, though they had been preaching, he had been uh, baptizing people in the name of John the Baptist, so he was sort of behind the times. He had not yet heard about everything that had gone down. And Priscilla and Aquila taught him that and baptized them in Jesus' name. It was, a, it was a big deal, and they had the, the they taught him what he needed to know about that. So we have evidence there. Even Timothy, who this letter is addressed to, uh, Paul says that it was his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who had taught him and brought him up in the correct understanding of 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 the scriptures so So we have a number of places I could probably think of more if I wanted to get into New Testament uh, women teaching theological things to in both cases of those were men. One case was uh, a son, another case was certainly not related. Uh, though she was with her husband, we we need to consider that as well. And I'm going to talk more about a woman's role in teaching in general later, but I just wanted to say that I think what's being said here, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, the reason it's said like that is not because he thinks that teaching is the same thing as having authority over a man. That does not seem to jive at all, either logically or biblically. What's being talked about expressly here is the idea of should a woman be an elder the idea here is he's talking about the two things that an elder does teaching and authority and the reason i think that this can be uh, somewhat clear is because of the remember this is the very end of chapter two when it starts to talk about i do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men and then right what you would miss the very next chapter which is an artificial chapter break it says This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober, good behavior possible. So he is contrasting the idea of, I do not suffer a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, Uh, and then to say, almost in the next breath, uh, though it's separated by chapter, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. So... So I am convinced here that when Paul says, I do not suffer a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, he's talking about the eldership position. Um, but I wouldn't, even if you couldn't explain that to somebody, I think this verse alone is sufficient to to say that a woman couldn't uh, be a, a pastor or a bishop. or when And again, bishop and elder, these are all things that are used interchangeably. And so there is, So when I say bishop and when I say elder, when I say pastor, try to think just pastor. Um, the, when I say that, um, it's important to, to realize that a woman could not do the office of a, an elder if she was not permitted to have authority over a man or to teach this would preclude her from being if if we just simply followed first Timothy 2:12 she would be precluded from being an elder by those two disqualifications but what i'm telling you here is that this is talking about the eldership so either way you want to look at it it's still it still is forbidding uh, a woman now to 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 be uh, have authority over a man. Now, let me talk about what the email had said, which was about Deborah specifically. She said that's the one that she wasn't quite sure about yet, because Deborah was a judge, um, and this is where this is important to realize that this did not, and, and this is, goes to her specific situation and having somewhat of a high-powered job too. This in no way seems to uh, to to be extended to civil or political. Or the world in any way. This is talking about the church structure, not in any way about um, what you know. Can you can you judge somebody or be it, you know whatever over somebody in terms of political or business matters? The Bible does not seem to address that in any way that I uh, know of. And, and not only does it not address it, we have examples such as Deborah and others that um, that show that there is there is no distinction made about whether a woman can have authority over a man in that regard or or even uh teach certainly we have teachers teaching uh just whatever schools of men and there's nothing wrong with that of course this is talking about um the eldership and why one of the reasons that i can say that is because of the two reasons that that he gives for why a woman should not teach he brings up an idea that says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Okay, this is, I think, the heart of the matter. Now, do are we to, to understand here that women are easily deceived? Well, on the face of it, it would seem that way. But I don't think that that's what the, is happening on a spiritual level here. I do not think in any way that this is meant to say that women are uh, uh, less Uh, smart, in fact, probably quite the opposite in terms of intelligence or any other metric you want to use. Uh, Women are not less in that regard. I think this has more to do with uh, the spiritual aspect of it. Let me explain what I mean. So I think that when a person becomes a pastor of a church or an elder or whatever, they are automatically entering into the, the, oh my goodness, I am a super big target for the enemy all of a sudden category. Because Satan, you know, he cares about messing with you before that. But it, but if you become a, a an overseer of a church, you have people that are listening to you for information about the Bible and everything else or, or whatever. You are automatically the biggest target for Satan and his devices, and he will begin to throw. All kinds of new stuff that you never even knew that he could throw at you at you, so that would include any way trying to to get you to believe some false doctrine that that would be great because if he can get you to believe a false doctrine, then he can get you to teach a false doctrine, and that means more uh, for him because for whatever reason that false doctrine is good for him, he gets you to teach it so that 's one area in which you are under attack, certainly you are under attack for sin. Um, he will come at you like crazy if he knows that by getting you to fall, stumble, or commit adultery, whatever, if you can get busted doing any of that stuff, then you can really cause a lot of people's faith to be destroyed and so on and so forth. Um, so you're a target. You're a target for a, a million different things. And what I guess I'm trying to say here, in I mentioned before in the past, and before I get into this part of my explanation, which is trying to explain the why I don't think, the why I think the Bible says this. I think I've already said what the Bible says, but I want to now try to explain why. And in order to do this, I'm going to have to go a little bit off, off Bible a little bit. So I want to preface this by saying, Chris's opinion world, Chris's opinion world, though I would also say that I think that there is some biblical precedent for everything I'm about to say, and I think you would agree. So anyway, I think that women are more prone to uh, spiritual attacks in that they are uh, have some kind of connection to the spiritual world that men don't have. Um, I'm not sure the nature of that. Like for example, you see a lot of the women in Scripture. Think of the uh, the the woman who you know Saul goes to the woman um, and and asks for him her to bring up a, you know a Saul or excuse me, yeah to bring up Samuel. That's a woman there as mediums and and, and psychics. And all these people are generally in culture women. Okay? And I would suggest that demonic beings uh, have some sort of either... Maybe it's because of their desire for women, which we see in Genesis 6 and other places where they actually uh, left their heavenly estate, were deceived and tempted by earthly women so much so that they left their former estate, as Jude says, to come here and to to have sexual intercourse with human women. So there is a temptation on their part um, to do so, and maybe that's why, because they are are more tempted by women, that they are more attentive to them, or maybe that there is some sort of spiritual connection more, uh, that they could listen to them more. I think that's whatever reason it is, is probably the reason that Paul mentions here about Eve's being deceived. Okay, imagine Adam and Eve, the only humans on earth at the time. They were like the only targets for all of hell at that point. There was only two people to try to deceive, okay? Uh, And they chose Eve for some reason. I think it's interesting that scholars don't really know what to do with that passage when Paul is talking about head coverings, and he says that one of the reasons that uh, women should wear them is because of the angels, and you know scholars are all over the board of what they think that because of the angels means. Uh, some say, well, the good angels are you know watching us and what we do, and they would be particularly sensitive if we didn't do the will of God here, but... And that may be the case, but I tend to think it's because of Genesis 6, that angels are tempted by women, and that there is some kind of dynamic going on there. And I don't, I'm do not i not trying here to explain the spiritual world to you. I'm not sure that it is possible to explain that uh, scripturally. I would just say that the Bible tells us that there is a reason, and it gives us a good enough reason, and it points back to Adam and Eve in saying that there was deception there. And the idea here is because it is possible with putting a big target on yourself. I am the teacher of this congregation. Please come and try to deceive me. And I'm not saying men are not deceived. Please, heavens forbid. Don't I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that they are less likely to do it for some spiritual reason. Uh, and I would say that, that Satan's main goal, and we even see this here in Timothy, when, when Paul is pulling his hair out about Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are now teaching a false doctrine that's causing people to fall away and stuff like that, Satan needs people to deceive for him. He can't do it himself. His main goal is to deceive. And he's really, really, really good at it. And you guys know this. I mean you've seen some of the videos and stuff out there that's just really finely done that sounds true, but it's all leading you away from the truth. He's really good at deception, but he needs a willing participant to sell it. And that's one of the that's why the Bible is so serious about this particular qualification of elders is they need to be have such good doctrine that, that they are not prone to that, and actually it goes into a great deal about how they need to be able to refute those false doctrines, such as he just asked Timothy to do. So, so again, the main charge of elders was to prevent from false teaching, and Paul's main reason for saying that he didn't want women to teach and have authority in an elder position was because of the ability for them to be deceived for whatever reason. So that's the why of this. That is, why can't women be elders? I do think that Scripture is quite clear about, should they be elders or not? Another question that's kind of related to this that I think needs to be addressed is, what about women that teach Bible studies and these kinds of things, like Beth Moore and so on? Is it wrong for men to listen to that? I probably shouldn't use Beth Moore as an example, because I'm sure somebody's going to send me an article and say, you know, Chris, Beth Moore is the is the spawn of Satan and she has been photographed with one hand over her eye and, uh, you know, as a Nephilim baby and the rest of it. So I'll say, okay, well, maybe not her. But there are really good women teachers out there. I know one in particular I've been enjoying in my uh, study of Daniel. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and sermons and teachings and reading a lot of books on Daniel. And one of my favorites has been done by a woman who's doing a women's Bible study in her church. She podcasted the study, and I've just been really, really enjoying it. And she's extremely humble, smart as any of them, and uh, any of the guys out there. She's doing really good original research. I just am am always impressed at, at her research and her uh, teaching on the book of Daniel. So, what about that? Is it wrong for me to listen to what she has to say about the book of Daniel? And I would say absolutely not. Um, again, there are those passages in Scripture when women are teaching, um, teaching men, and they are in the, the what I would say is appropriate context and everything. In that context, she's doing what the Bible says to teach. You know, it says that women are to instruct uh, their families and other women. Obviously, we have an example in Priscilla teaching uh, other uh, men in that case with her husband and so we we've got examples of 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 correct ways for this to happen and this woman example example is doing it in a very uh, great way i'm sure that there are other ways in which it is okay to do uh, for women to teach the thing that i would say that's only different here is that it would be it would be wrong if Beth Moore was my pastor, or she was claiming to be a pastor of a church, or if this woman that is teaching Daniel, if she was the head pastor of this church, and that's what that, you know, and she was, or maybe even if she wasn't claiming to be the head pastor, uh, but I went to that church, and I and she was the same as my pastor. That's when it would be biblically incorrect. So, that is a lot to say. To this particular person, again, I would say, this: this does not extend to the political or social... Uh, world or the business world. This is only in church structure. This is how God has wanted His church to function, uh, and He did it for our protection, and He knows what is best. I think that's the bottom line here. We shouldn't shy away from what God says. It does, he loves us, and He knows what's best for us, and He's really, really, really smart. So let's just go with Him on this, uh, and I think that is. Uh, my answer to that. Okay, moving on to question number two. Okay, so this is kind of an amalgamation of questions about the Nephilim that I have received over the last week or so uh, from a particular person, and we've been going back and forth discussing the issue, and I think it's an important issue and one that others can benefit from too. So um, the question is, Are the Nephilim going to play a role in the end-time scenario, according to the Bible? And sort of a two-parter to this is, what about the UFO phenomenon? Does that have anything to do with Nephilim? That is, the sightings of UFOs or alien abductions and these kinds of things. Is that Nephilim uh, up there doing all that stuff? And I kind of made a jump in logic there. I'm presuming that a lot of you that believe that the Nephilim are coming back in an end-time scenario also believe that they are playing a role in that UFO thing. So, that's why I've kind of pieced those two together. And they really encompass a lot of what's going around in the Christian community. So, it's good to sort of see what scripture has to say about it. And there are no explicit teachings that the Nephilim are coming back in the Bible. Um, this is kind of problematic for those that are teaching this is that they throw a lot of scriptures out there and then have to do a lot of explaining as to why this is referencing the Nephilim and some of those are better than others in terms of their argument we're going to look at as many of them as I can here in in this short amount of time uh, and talk about each one of them but I think you'll see absolutely some of them are just simply not talking about that and the ones that are ambiguous are definitely not explicit teachings in scripture so for example some people might reference daniel 2 and the final empire that is mixed with iron and clay and it says they shall they shall mingle their seed with the seed of men but it will not cleave together even as iron does not mix with clay even if you thought that that was having to do with nephilim in your heart it's not the scripture is not telling you that that has to do with nephilim uh right there it could be any number of other things besides nephilim even if you thought that it was talking about Nephilim, which I'll make the case that it isn't talking about Nephilim here in a minute. But it would be the only verse in Scripture that would even touch the idea. Uh, the other verses don't even come close. So, so for example, the other verse that is that headlines this discussion as is, as in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. So they'll say, well, the days of Noah had Nephilim in it, so it's going to have Nephilim in the days when the Son of Man returns. As well. Um, and that is like a big argument for the Nephilim returning in the end times. But there, this is tremendously problematic. One of the ways this kind of slips past is because in Matthew 24, which is most often where this is quoted, it doesn't mention Lot as well. Uh, it just mentions, as in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, marrying wives, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That's essentially what it says there in Matthew 24, and it stops. But if you look at the parallel passage in Luke 17, it also mentions Lot, and it says the same, way, same thing, thereby giving us express intent of Jesus' meaning. Jesus couldn't do any more to tell us what he means by referencing the days of Noah than he does in the, these verses that I'm about to read. I don't think that it's possible to miss his intention. Let me read it. It says, as it, is, "...as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all." Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day, uh, in that day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, and okay, so so the point is that he's saying that it was basically business as usual until the day that the wrath of God was poured out. They were eating, they they were drinking, they were given in marriage, they were buying and selling. He goes gives a ton of examples there to twice in two references to in two biblical times where the wrath of God was poured out and gives two references to like five different things that they were doing before the wrath of God happened in order to say it was business, just as it was then when it was like business as usual until I came, it's going to be like that again, That is going to people are going to be marrying, buying and selling, eating and drinking planting until the day that the wrath of God is poured out and I would even go one step further and say that you can make a biblical case that he's pointing out the fact that these were day back to back events, that is the very day that Noah entered the ark was the day that the wrath of God began. And I think this is scriptural. It, it is therefore scriptural to argue, as I do, that the rapture happens the very day that the day of the Lord begins. That is, we are taken out of the way, and then that very same day, the wrath of God, that is, the day of the Lord, begins. I make that case in the video that I did called "The Rapture Puzzle Solved" with Matthew twenty four, that that may be questionable. You can question whether or not the, that scripture is teaching that, but it is not questionable that Jesus is basically using this as in the days of Noah to describe the business as usual aspect uh, before the wrath of God begins. That's his clear and main intention here. When this is when I the, basically it was Chuck Missler who started this idea that um, this that the Nephilim were coming back. He did this series called The Return of the Nephilim, one that I have promoted in the past. And the idea that he says at this point is he says it real quick. He's like, you know, this could possibly just mean that it's business as usual, but I think that it could also mean, and then he says, you know, something that was happening in the days of Noah and so on and so forth. And he goes on to sort of say that this secondary meaning is the primary meaning and that's one thing if it's just talking about Noah. But when you go to Luke 17 and he's also talking about Lot, it's it makes that very, very shaky idea, idea far more shaky to say that he's really trying to give you a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that the Nephilim are coming back despite any other evidence in Scripture saying that. You know, for example when I say there's no explicit teaching in Scripture, you can't go to the book of Revelation and find anything that says the Nephilim are going to come back. You can't say that, um, for example, the, the you know, the frogs, the spirit-like frogs coming out of the mouth of the false prophet and the and the beast and uh, is really Nephilim because that doesn't make sense. They're spirits. They're coming out of their mouth. They're only gathering the nations to battle. It doesn't make any sense for that to be Nephilim. Uh, the locust-like beings that come out of the abyss and the and the fifth trumpet—they they're not Nephilim. I, I I mean they they're definitely something, but they are not Nephilim. I mean you can't find any you can't find any Nephilim in there. So you've got to go to these verses like um, there are there's a great deception coming you know in the end times and then they'll say see this great deception that the bible talks about that's the nephilim so they go to very ambiguous passages taken out of context basically just talking about deception and then say that's nephilim uh or that's aliens or whatever Uh, i don't have again a problem with aliens playing some sort of role in the end time scenario it's just not in scripture that that's the case uh, let me go through. As I said, I, I went through a bunch of different verses that people use about this, but I think I need to build my case just a little bit more before I uh, go too much further. So let's go to Daniel chapter two. This is the big one. This is the one that I remember saying. You know, there isn't any teaching unless Daniel two is true. Because if, if Daniel two is true, then then there's at least some solid footing to kind of work this theology in. Uh, it might just be one spot, one place for one foot, but it's it's something. Uh, And and so let me read that. Daniel 2.40 starts off and says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, insomuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle the seed of men. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the day, days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom of God shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. In as you saw that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, uh, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this dream. is This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So I'm... Presuming here that most of you know what's happening in Daniel 2, there is a dream of a statue. That statue is composed of four metals, the head of gold, uh, the, the breast of silver, and, and on and on and on. Here at this final kingdom, the legs, feet, and toes are all made of iron, though the very, very last part of that kingdom, uh, that last Uh, a kingdom of iron is also mixed with ceramic clay so the feet and toes are kind of mixed with clay the Bible here says that this is referring to a divided kingdom one that is partly strong and partly weak the Nephilim interpretation of this relies completely on Daniel 243 where it says that they will mingle their seed with the seed of men And I remember hearing this and the idea is if they are going to mingle their seed with the seed of men, then they must be something other than the seed of men. That's the exact phrase that I remember hearing. And if that was true that we had no idea who this they was and we had no idea what this phrase mingling their seed with the seed of men meant, then maybe you could make a case. It's almost like trying to make a case to somebody who is not going to do some basic Bible study about this. I mean, And I mean basic Bible study because it doesn't take a genius to figure out who the they in this verse is and it ain't the nephilim grammatically it is the two parts of the divided kingdom that is you know, this final kingdom has two sections. It's divided in twain, okay? And uh, it's got two sections. They, both sides of this one kingdom, are going to try to mingle themselves together for the purpose of uniting this kingdom to try to be strong. Because right now, it's got a weak weak part and a, a strong part. They try to mingle together, mingle their seed with one another, Okay. You know, other versions, like the ESV, basically say this flat out because of the other uses of this phrase in the Bible. They say, uh, Daniel 243, as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Okay, so it says that it's marriage there. Uh, the reason that it can be so bold in saying that is because this phrase, mingling their seed with the seed of men, this idea, this phrase, is used lots of times in the Bible about marriage for the purpose of producing offspring. It is abundantly clear that these two sides of the of the divided last kingdom try to try to unite via marriage. Now, when you look at context, that this is Rome, okay? I mean, everybody thinks that the last kingdom is Rome. There is there isn't anybody that doesn't believe that the divided or, or the kingdom isn't rome um and you look at what this is chronologically supposed to be the very last part of rome the feet and toes part of rome this is like the best possible description of the end of rome divided weak tried to marry the east and west parts of the roman empire together to try to stay together but it didn't work they tried it like two or three or four times even um, I go through at least some of the major times that they tried to marry each other to the east and west parts of the empire to stay together. This isn't like niche history, it's like the big part of how Rome fell uh, and tried to, to keep together via this uh, this uniting thing. so uh, Via marriage and trying to produce offspring. Of course, producing the offspring is important in that marriage because the offspring would then go on to be the ruler of the... It would be the, 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 the ruler so it would actually be part of that dynasty so it's like the oldest thing in history that that's how they tried to unite kingdoms and and everything else but anyway i go through that in much greater detail in the uh the video uh nephilim toes or the end of rome daniel 2 so check that out if you want to know more about that but here's another thing about the end times if you don't want to think about that or you don't like that for whatever reason um think about this as far as the the kingdom that destroys those those rocks it 's the kingdom of God. we know it 's not uh the return of christ because it's the it 's the setup of his kingdom. Uh, I go through in that video talking about how jesus 's kingdom is one that was established in the Empire of Rome. And that, as Jesus said about the kingdom of God, it starts as small as a mustard seed, but then grows to an enormous side, a size over time. He gives several parables of the kingdom of God. That was, and he says in, in several times that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he established within the Roman Empire, that would eventually destroy all other kingdoms, that over time was established during the Roman Empire. So there's, there's a ton of biblical support for what I'm telling you right now. Um, And I'd describe that again in that section. I would also, uh, well, I won't go into too much more detail. I'll only say that. And then, uh, but what I would appeal to you in regard to the end times about is that this, what's being described here, this divided, weak, falling apart kingdom that does nothing but fizzle away is not in any way descriptive of the final empire of the world, okay? Antichrist kingdom is never described as divided or weak or fizzling away. It is, it is, nearly, I would say, invincible in that there is no sense that it ever uh, is showing any side of sign of weakness until the very end. Um, so, so, until when God destroys it. So, in fact, God gives the Antichrist the authority and uh, he has all this uh, authority and power, power is given to him by Satan the, throughout the course of the entire last bit until he's actually destroyed. So, it doesn't you, there's no verses that speak of the Antichrist's weakness. This is not a consistent theme at all about the Antichrist kingdom or the end times kingdom. What we're looking here in Daniel 43 has nothing to do with the end times, um, in my opinion. So, so anyway, I think that if somebody tries to, that, that's damning to the idea that this that we're talking about Nephilim in the end times. If you lose Daniel 243, you have lost everything and because there is no other verse that can even. Hope to be a theological discussion about the Nephilim, because the, as in the days of Noah thing, we've already seen that's about as weak as you can get. The rest of the verses that people throw out here are, as I mentioned, just about a deception in the end time, the great deception and these kinds of things. So we need to talk a little bit about those two. 1 Timothy 4 1 is a really big one. It says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It goes on to say that they will speak lies and hypocrisy, have their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, we have here a a testimony from the Spirit that in the latter times, some people will depart from the faith. That is, they will apostatize from Christianity. They will leave Christianity in the end times. Okay, one of the reasons, or it's given two reasons here, that may be one reason. It says, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Okay, so what is the doctrine of demons? Let's look at that first. Doctrines of demons are just teachings. That's what doctrines mean. So teachings of demons, I think that uh, it's not wouldn't come as a surprise to most people here that there are a lot of doctrines of demons out there, a lot of cults are basically doctrines of demons. That is, people had some kind of spiritual experience where they were given a new revelation, a new book, a new teaching um, that is contrary to the Bible and is extremely seductive, yet wrong and evil, basically. But there are a lot of followers of that and a lot of followers that leave uh, the true uh, faith. So there is a lot of apostasy because of doctrines of demons. Nothing new there. But what seems to be happening here is that it will be a a, a very uh, big one, a big apostasy. In fact, it calls it the great apostasy in another place. But at least this part, uh, the the departing from the faith, is going to be due to a teaching, not a demon itself. Uh, in In a sense, it will be in that the demon started the teaching, but the teaching itself will be the reason that people will depart from the faith. And it could mean that in that scenario that these people giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, that that's essentially talking about the same thing, Okay, that these deceiving spirits created the doctrines of demons. It could be that. Or it could be referring to two things, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That is, there are deceiving spirits doing something, and then we also have these doctrines of demons, and these two things in tandem are causing a lot of apostasy. It could mean that. If it does mean that, We are not told in any way what the deceiving spirits would be doing. Um, At least in the other scenario, we we would assume that they are are causing the doctrines of demons. But in this case, we don't know what they would be doing. People are giving heed to them. It could be in the sort of New Age or really any other kind of sense. I mean, ever since there were uh, people on the earth, people have been giving heed to deceiving spirits by opening themselves up to them, channeling them, doing what they say, these kinds of things. So if if it is in fact talking of two different things, it could be something like that. The fact is that it's it's not explicit about what the deceiving spirits do. Of course, a lot of people want to try to insert into the text here that these deceiving spirits are going to, to be aliens, and this is all going to have to do with aliens, because the mention of spirits being deceiving. Well, I got news for you. Spirits are always deceiving, and that's just their thing, and they don't have to be in alien spaceships to be deceiving. And they certainly don't need to be in alien spaceships to cause people to d- depart from the faith. The doctrines of demons, I think, are an important part of this, and I think that we're told explicitly what the apostasy is later on, or w- why people apostatize, and it's not, it's not consistent with this idea that this is going to be aliens. But one thing that i think this is absolutely not able to be used for is that the nephilim are coming back in the end times because no matter which way you take that last part you know deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons it's not the nephilim there are no nephilim present in that idea nephilim are not um you know they are a different thing than deceiving spirits fewer if, if the Bible would not call them deceiving spirits if in fact the Nephilim had come back and they created hybrid Nephilim and they were growing them in Nephilim tanks underground or whatever uh, as some kind of variations of this thing teach so so whatever it is this deception in first Timothy is not terribly clear though I think that in first Timothy 4 3 it does give us a little bit of a flavor of the teaching uh, there's a forbidding of marrying and a commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So so this is one of the characteristics of the teaching. And I think that goes to show you that it is a teaching that we're really, you know... People don't see aliens and then say, oh my gosh, let's stop eating meat. There is a teaching that needs to come you know, along with it. And you could say, well, when the aliens come, they're going to give a new teaching. Well... Okay, that may be a belief that you hold, but it is not a teaching of Scripture. It's certainly not something you can extrapolate from First Timothy 4:1, or I would submit any other part of the Bible. Um, okay, so there's this is continuing with this genre of proof text about a return of the Nephilim, talking about an upcoming deception. Let's move on to another one. This one is probably of this genre. It's the granddaddy of all. And it's referring to what I would say is the greatest deception of all. This is the deception that God sends in order to damn the unbelievers, as this this will go on to say. Um, and it is, is the deception that will be the thing that causes the world to worship the Antichrist. And I think that we'll develop that. I have developed that in my study of Mystery Babylon in this section. I think it's uh, in the early part, Revelation 17, probably around verse 11 or something. Uh, It's the verse that deals with this. I can put a link in the show notes to that specific section because I go at length, uh, proving, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt with Scripture about what I'm about to explain as I discuss this whole issue about what is this great deception but um, so let's read 2 Thessalonians 2 7-12 for the mystery of iniquity doth already work only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way and then shall the wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they are re- they received not the love of truth that they might be saved, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. so here we have the mystery of iniquity. this is the big one this is um, this is about contextually the coming of the lawless uh, lawless one or the wicked one and that in his revealing his revealing whatever that means uh is the context of this idea of this great deception that will cause people uh that, that god equates with uh their damnation okay now i think that this deception is is borne out and the reason why it, it becomes so prominent in revelation uh, 17 and 18 uh, in that study that I did is because it's the reason that people worship the Antichrist. Ultimately, it is a it is what it is the resurrection of Antichrist. A lot of people, when they try to deal with this particular issue, they are falling all over themselves because because Revelation talks about the resurrection of Antichrist as it as a real thing. Okay, that uh, that he really s- not seems to die. He dies and then he comes back to life and then everybody worships him. It's the the resurrection of Antichrist that causes all the worship, basically. Um, And so people fall over themselves because you can't say that Satan can resurrect the dead. Antichrist, you know, Satan can't do it. Okay, so most commentators will sort of say well you know whether this is a resurrection or not we don't really know but he, let's just say he appears to resurrect and that causes everybody to worship him but i don't think it's necessary to say that i think that that i think that we can say that this the strong delusion is the resurrection of antichrist caused by god who sends this strong delusion on people for the purpose of uh, uh of worship uh, of of judging essentially those who refused to love the truth, and as it says there in second thessalonians two um, but anyway, so this begins, and I talk about, and I show all the verses where it talks about this idea of the resurrection of the Antichrist, and it becomes a title of him, him who you know had the you know was wounded by the sword, but did live and goes on and and, and begins to refer to him as this person who died but now lives, and it becomes a refrain about who the Antichrist is all through the book of Revelation, because it is so quintessential to the reason that people worship him. And obviously there are messianic uh, tones in that that idea. I mean, the resurrection of Messiah doesn't need exactly me to to spell that out for you to see why that is a, uh, a, a, a big deal and why the Antichrist would want to do that. And I think for that reason it's good to again talk about what About what the Lord says about this deception because it seems to tie into it quite nicely. On the olive Discourse you can read it in Matthew 24, you can read it in Mark 13 it says for false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce if it were possible even the elect it's it's interesting that now remember we, we tend to forget this word Christ. Jesus is saying that false messiahs will come He's talking to Jewish people who have absolutely no, you know, are not going to miss his point that false messiahs are, are going to come, not false Jesuses. I think that's what we hear when we hear Jesus say that. We say, you know, false Jesuses are going to come. And we always like say, yeah, people didn't claim to be Jesus. He's not talking about that. He's saying false messiahs will come and false prophets shall rise. and shall, And I think maybe even that shall rise has something to do with it as in terms of resurrection I don't know but and shall show signs and wonders to seduce if it were possible even to elect. So this is that great deception. This is what Jesus is talking about now. Now we're talking about a deception. And Jesus equates that deception to a false messiah. Okay? So um so when we say this is all going to be about aliens, it's going to be about nephilim and we forget that Jesus is talking about this in terms of messiahs and prophets in a Jewish context, then we are forgetting everything that he told us. When he says, see, I told you beforehand, we're like, yeah, but we kind of want the Nephilim and alien thing. And look, I sympathize with you because it's a really good plan from a worldly perspective. It's like a really good... And I think that I figured out why it sounds so good and why I promoted the idea for so long. And that is because trying to sort of figure out how like the how Lindsey version of the Antichrist and everything works, you got to come up with something because... It doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, some political figure that just makes peace and just wants to, you know, make everybody get along with some new religion uh, that everybody can get behind, which, I mean, I spent years trying to figure out how that could work, and because I had a wrong Antichrist and a wrong End Times event, I essentially constructed without any biblical precedent, and other people did too. I'm certainly not the originator of this idea, but uh, that it had something to do with aliens because that seemed to make it all work. But I did that at the expense of scriptures pleading with me to pay attention to what it's saying, and I did it using verses out of context. I did it not fully understanding or refusing to understand what it what the meaning of stuff like simple things, like in the, as in the days of Noah or whatever. You know, I, I disregarded that just because it talked about a deception. I got to say it was aliens. You know, it's just not the case. Well, I talked a lot about that. I still have one more section of that to go. Um, So I'll try to find a real short question to answer for the third one, and I'll try to wrap this up real quick on the second part of this. So the second part is, what about lights in the sky and alien abductions and this kind of stuff? I'll make this brief because I know I've talked about it in other places. I think that what we are calling the alien phenomenon has at least two or three better explanations than Nephilim or aliens from another planet or whatever. Um, I think that the first one is that a lot of them are hoaxes and stuff like that or just misinterpreted. Uh, A good example of that is the Phoenix Lights. I mean, people say, what do you do about the Phoenix Lights? Well, I mean, look at the Phoenix Lights. uh, Go to com. Look at the blog post on the Phoenix Lights. There is no question. Somebody overlaid the uh, the disappearing of those lights. you know People say, well, they turn off one by one. They overlaid the disappearing of lights by the jagged edges of the mountain behind it, and that's why they disappeared one by one. The, the, it was obviously the flares that were always said from day one for it to be. But they said, oh, if there are flares, how do they turn off? Well, there's your answer. So there's that kind of stuff. There's also, I think, uh, for some of these craft that are just, they're, they're government craft, uh, and they are black you know projects or whatever stuff we don't know about certainly a big percentage of, of sightings of craft must fall into that category. Uh, what percentage, I don't know. Then there's the sightings of lights in the sky, which also could fall into the first category or second category. But I think that some of those lights in the sky can also be chalked up to a spiritual cause. Um, you know, occultists for a long time have been able to you know summon lights in the sky. There's a testimony of a few different people uh, about that particular issue. I would say that... You know, if a person has opened up doors, especially in their life, they are really able to see that kind of stuff. Um, And I think it's just, you know, Satan can masquerade as angels of light. You know, so don't be surprised if his ministers can also. Though I think that's a possibility when we're talking about just lights in the sky for people that have opened doors already and stuff like that. That's just that's just standard sort of demonic trickery, but. It doesn't need. If we're talking about lights in the sky, they don't certainly have to be craft anyway. Uh, there's lots of testimonies of people, uh, as I've mentioned uh, before, that are occultists that can do this, and that at least say that it's a pretty standard part of occultism that is to be able to summon demons that will appear as. Uh, um, uh, lights in the sky. Take that for what it's worth. So maybe a a subsection of those sightings have to do with that. Then you have the alien abduction phenomenon, which, um, you know, uh, the sleep paralysis stuff that uh, I've done, stopsleepparalysis.org. This is basically a milder form of alien abduction than that is for people that have opened doors for whatever reason to demonic stuff, uh, that are experiencing a non—it's hard to say non-physical because in a sense it is physical. Demons are real, like you and I are real. Uh, and if you have a lot of open doors in your life, whether that's because of your participation in a lot of really occult things or any number of things that could have ha- happened, uh, perhaps even to you or different kinds of, uh, you know. Ritual or even generational stuff that could have happened for whatever reason if that you have open doors they can have various degrees of access to you and can you know harm and physically and 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 do other things like that to you. but as the uh you know if we have seen over and over again that the authority of Jesus Christ that is asking for help uh from Jesus Christ and calling out to him and rebuking these things in jesus' name is it stops the thing from happening altogether. I mean, you are no longer on a ship and you were no longer, you were in your bed and you were the whole time, though it was real in a sense. uh, But, but it wasn't real in a real sense. You really weren't on a craft and it certainly didn't have Nephilim there. Um, So it's just, Again, that's standard demonology. You can look in a, in a book about an encyclopedia or something about you know the way that, that history is, has perceived the sleep paralysis phenomena or whatever. It's always been fairies or whatever culturally was available, but the thing is always the same. It was never Nephilim, uh, though these people believed that they were dealing with... Um, you know, and that's why it can appear as an old hag or it can't it can appear as an alien or it can appear as, you know, this shadow people or any number of things that you're into. I could go down a list of the things that it has appeared to people to be, but is deceptive and it's because that person has open doors in their life. You know, you just don't have, I mean, I could go on at length on that issue, but I am running out of time. So, all that to say that I think there's a lot of people out there just... Basically jumping on board with every weird thing that somebody says about the UFO phenomenon and say, oh, Nephilim, Ah, oh, Nephilim strike again, I told you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we don't have to just take everything that, that anybody says that has a picture of a UFO and just automatically give it credence and say Nephilim because because number one, we don't have to biblically, as I hope I've at least started you on the path to realize that we don't. There is no biblical reason for you to do that. Um, and secondly, I don't think that um, that 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 we have to believe the phenomenon is what UFOologists believe that it is either. I think it could be at least uh, government craft as well as uh, you know demonic trickery. Uh, and I don't think that demons in so-called alien abduction or anything more than that. In fact, I've mentioned this a kajillion times, and I'll mention it one more time for the record. In the study of alien abductions done by John Mack at Harvard, they found out that all the people that were claiming to have alien abductions were also really, really into the occult, like a huge percentage of them. So they actually had to come up with an old new survey called the Paranormal Belief Scale to quantify exactly how much into the occult they were uh, this study had been, you know, picked up by others later who did further research on alien abductions, like Susan Blackmore and others, that found tremendous, uh, you know, confirmed the sort of extreme occult nature of the people that were experiencing alien abductions, which is, of course, our, hypo- our hypothesis at sleepparalysis.org, Org that the more doors you have opened in your life via things like drugs or occult. Uh, Stuff or various things that could have happened in terms of generational stuff. If you have a lot of open doors, uh, then you will have more they will have more access to do physical things to you. Big open doors equal, they can do a lot of stuff, including changing, you know, uh, uh, you know, torture and these kinds of things that have always in history been it, been described, though in different paradigms. You know, now we've got fairies and fawns doing it in the olden days. Now we've got greys and reptilians doing it in the new days. It's just a, they've cha- updated the the vocabulary in order to be, uh, to further a- 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 an agenda that, that, Look, Satan is behind the alien agenda in this sense. He's been getting people to turn away from Christianity ever since day 1 with the alien thing. The alien thing is like one of his best things going in terms of getting people to uh to not be Christians. Look at the ancient aliens idea. You know, that that doesn't have to be a macro thing of trying to get people to get ready for the grand Nephilim invasion. It just has to be like the Mormons or whatever, you know? It it's just another way to get people to Turn away from Jesus Christ. It's just one more. I mean, just be, Satan was behind the Mormons thing, but it doesn't mean that you know everything that is supposed to happen in the Mormon eschatology is going to happen, and that Satan's you know preparing us for the whatever thing that's supposed to happen there. It's just it doesn't need to happen. It's just one more thing that he's doing to deceive people. So, oh my goodness, I ran out of time real quick. I'll answer the question that I have been letting go for a few weeks. So let's do it. Question number three. <music> This was one asking if I knew any Christian charities to support, and I do know of a number of Christian charities and let me just qualify this, but I think that at least the way i 've been thinking of giving is that it's in three different categories: uh, one is mercy, this includes things like uh, giving to uh, people that are you know poor you know African village needs food orphans, that kind of thing um, uh, one is is teaching that is to say where i am growing from am i who is who am i learning from and in that case i would give to them that whoever i'm particularly learning from that week And that's how i do it anyway is who i would give to there and then also for uh... missions or outreach that is to say people that are out there preaching the gospel and that i'm supporting them in in terms of outreach and missionary endeavors so in each of those categories in mercy i've got a number of them uh, one is uh, Abby, which is, uh, she's hopefully about to, she's been, uh, she got out of parole. I think I mentioned her w- at one point. It's a, somebody that my wife had been uh, uh, working with in prison ministry. And we have a website called hopeforabby.com. There's a link on the main podcast page, com. She is uh, one kind of thing there. I like uh, groups like that do disaster relief. I've kind of got a... Uh, There's one, Calvary Chapel, I've interviewed them before. They do uh, some great work, and I think that they are kind of the best of both worlds and that they also are uh, evangelists and missionaries too, but they're certainly a Mercy group. Some of the bigger ones too are out there, but I really think that those guys, the Sarasota uh, Calvary Chapel uh, disaster relief team, does great work for for Mercy. There's so much stuff out there for that. Uh, Having gone to Africa, there are people that I now know, uh, there that I have you know been supporting that uh, pr- particularly this one guy who is a uh, head of a, a, a lot of uh, a people out there that really has a passion for uh, getting good doctrine and stuff and he has a uh, you know uh, stayed with him when I was there he's very. Uh, straight up guy, so I kind of have those personal things. I think that 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 you might be able to find those kinds of organizations and stuff in your own life and your around your own area. Mercy is probably one of the easiest ways to find people that need it. it. It to me, it's just as good sometimes to 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 mix it up and give give money to the people that um, you know that are down and out in your life, and that that changes somebody's. You know, it's one thing to talk about Christian stuff, but it's another thing to give somebody two hundred, three hundred dollars or whatever because you know they just are really going through a time where they really need it or something like that, and say, hey, I was going to give it to somebody, you know, you just happened to need it, so there you go. That, so there, there's that kind of stuff for mercy. Uh, teaching, I think teaching is, is one of these things that's all over the board, um, for me especially, because I, I think it's a good place to, to put it in your church, if that's where you're going, and you're growing a lot from your church. Uh, I, give it, I give to uh, people that I listen to, like podcasts and stuff like that, uh, teachers online, um, a lot of things. I, I, when we were, when we had the system of going through all three like clockwork, we would just see where that week we got the most information and from, and we would give to them. Uh, and then what was the other one? Missions. Oh, missions! I think that uh, there's a lot of good ones. I like Heart Cry Paul Washer's um, organization. I think they they are one of the better ones out there there are plenty of them though out there and i think that if you know of any missionaries in your church usually your church will have a a missions list who's going to support those guys but you guys you know you are the ones that that are going to support those guys if you have somebody in your church so i would just go to your church go down your uh, who we support kind of missionary list there's almost certainly somebody out there that's struggling in in some far corner of the world that could really uh, be blessed by your uh, check or, or what have you so uh, so yeah, I, th- there are plenty of, of good good ministries out there. I don't think you can go wrong. Um, and I uh, just hope that helps. And I think that will conclude the show. Thanks for listening. Again, please send any questions you may have to Bible Prophecy Talk, Ancient ancientaliensdebunked.com, the main page at Nowhere to Run, um, the podcast there. So thanks, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.